Hello and welcome to Spy Hard Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, arriving on a German U-boat, infiltrating the podcast this week, we have a very (laughs) special guest. Yes, we do. Uh, We have... Carrie Specht from ClassicFilmFan.com. Carrie, welcome aboard. Thank you. Did you arrange the German U-boat just because I'm of German descent? I didn't. I didn't even know you were of German descent, but that's perfectly serendipitous. (laughs) Well, I'm glad to be here either way. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I mean, it's sort of an interesting genesis because we got uh, chatting on Twitter before this all came, came to pass and we were talking about uh, spy films and I asked you what sort of era you were looking at uh, you enjoyed and you said the 1930s and this film was coming up and we thought hey why don't you join us and, and here you are yeah I absolutely love the 1930s and 1939 in particular and this film is from 1939 I can't tell you how much I love this film I'm we're gonna get into this and I guess I will tell you how much I love this film I'm curious where did your passion for older cinema start because the 30s is a very specific period well, I loved cinema in general. Um, I think my mom was watching some old black and white films on PBS, which public television here um, in California. I don't know where else. And that's one of the only places you could see old movies. And my mom growing up either watched movies on television or sometimes she got to see them in the theaters. But this way she could watch them again. As, as you guys probably know, old films, when they died, moved into television and helped create television as we know it today. So you go to either the local station that's got nothing to show. And and I'm talking back in the 70s here. I think I'm older than you guys. And there was nothing on there. You had three channels, four, maybe five channels. And so what content are they going to use? And it was a lot of old movies, a lot of Bob Hope for some strange reason. We're actually covering Bob Hope pretty soon, actually. (laughs) Is that right? How about the Bowery Boys? That was the other one. That'll be more of a hundredth episode uh, celebration. We'll do those. (laughs) And every once in a while, you'd get something that was in the public domain. And some of those films that are in the public domain are quite well known, like uh, Stagecoach is in the mm. public domain. So um, that just got me sucked in. And I liked it better than local television in the 70s. And it went from there. Now, apart from classicfilmfan.com, which we'll get to in a minute, you actually have uh, quite the history in film. So, you know, I, I listened to you on a podcast recently, but give us a brief overview of your work in cinema. Oh, yeah, sure. Well, I have my undergraduate degree from San Francisco State in screenwriting, and I graduate degree from NYU in production. And I ended up going through the Directors Guild of America trainee program to become an assistant director. I finished that in 2000. I worked on a whole bunch of different TV shows during that time. Um, ER, Malcolm in the Middle, Diagnosis Murder, Criminal Minds. Um, I think almost every police procedural murder show there was. (laughs) And uh, once I graduated, I worked on things like Angel and Alias. And I know I'm forgetting a whole bunch of stuff, including, oh, I also worked on... um, what is it called? Torchwood, the spinoff from Doctor Who. Oh, they yeah. Did a, yeah. Yeah, they did a season in Los Angeles. And uh, our nickname for that show was Torturewood. So that'll tell you how um, easily that show was to work on. But yeah, I worked as an assistant director, but I also worked freelance, non-union as an electrician, as a grip 
um, as a production assistant and, and in the office, I actually lost the tip of my thumb working as a grip. Wow. Um, what show was that on? <laughs> <laughs> that was a really low budget independent feature in New York. And it just popped the tip of my thumb off when I was trying to put up a piece of equipment. And I had this little teeny tiny spray, a perfect spray about four feet around me of blood. And every time my heart beat, it just, you know, went out of my appendage and I went to the hospital and got it cauterized. And I was so excited because I thought, yeah, they're going to burn me. I'm going to have a scar. And <laughs> they don't do that anymore. They just stick your, whatever it is in three different liquids and you're done. Very disappointing. At least that accident didn't happen on a tortured miracle day. <laughs> uh, that, that would not have been a miracle at all. Um, Okay, and then so you, you've done that, and, and now you're also a professor in cinema, I believe, yeah. or in film. Yes, that's right. I'm a professor of film and television at La Sierra University in Riverside, California. I actually teach all the hands-on classes. My colleague teaches screenwriting and takes care of all the red tape with the university, but I teach anything that you have to put your hands on, including, you know, grip, electric, camera, editing, sound, um, forgetting some stuff, directing producing, making the film post-production. And I get to teach once a year a history of cinema class. And that's my favorite class to teach. So I'm always curious when it comes to teaching cinema in the classroom. Um, I've taken some courses myself. I was an English major, but I did, did take some film classes on the side. And I'm always interested in what films the teachers are the most excited to you know, show their students. So I'm curious what some of yours are. Well, I love showing uh, Sherlock Jr you know, the Buster yeah. Keaton Charlie film. I just like to see the students surprised with how entertaining it is. And it's a, it's a relatively short, um, silent film. So I'm not, it's like 40 minutes long. So I'm not subjecting them to a full feature silent film. I think that would be too much to expect from them. But I love showing that one. I love showing it happen one night. It's a rom-com. Um, I like showing Frankenstein, but yeah, I get a split, you know, of people liking it, not liking it, like extreme. Um, I also show Lilies of the Field, the Sidney Poitier Academy Award winning film where he won the Oscar and uh, Dog Day Afternoon. I love showing some Like It Hot, The Thing from Another World, uh, Tootsie. Um, this year I showed Die Hard because um, yes. I, I wanted to show something extremely different from Tootsie, which is also from the 80s. Right. I, uh, Shawshank Redemption, The Iron Giant. And I finish with Hacksaw Ridge. Oh, that's interesting. Like a lot of those all kind of make sense to me. How do you work in Hacksaw Ridge? Well, it's an Adventist university where I teach. And the main character in the film is an Adventist. Mm, okay, right, right. So it's an easy sell for a very violent war film that I think is really, really important. It's a lot, a lot of critics thought it was uh, gratuitous or too much where in fact, I think is really, really important to show how incredibly violent war is instead of, oh, I got shot and there's no blood. Um, not just in general, but also for the storyline where the guy is, you know, I don't want to get, have anything given away, but he's a medic who has to go in and save lives. And that just shows you the conditions that he was under, which is so key to the story. So the students usually end up really loving that film. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, and there's definitely a lot to delve into, just in terms of the, uh, I mean, Mel Gibson as a director carries a lot of themes from movie to movie, and that one is very much the, feels like the culmination, at least to this point. I agree. I think if it if he had made the film either before his rants or farther after his rants, 
he would have won Best Picture. He would have won Best Director. I don't think Garfield would have won Best Actor. I can't remember who won that year, but uh, it's a film that should have won Best Picture and Best Director. Mm, interesting. Well, I would say it sounds like your credentials check out. <laughs> thank you yeah i i think so um do i get a badge we, well we we send you a tuxedo and a martini kit that'll Excellent. that'll be in the post Excellent. um but before we tackle the film in terms of spy movies and aside from the one we're tackling today because i know you're a big fan of it are there any other spy films that you particularly love well it's interesting you ask that because i think some of the spy films that i really love aren't necessarily um in the genre of spy film or, or most people wouldn't necessarily think as a spy film. Uh, there's another uh, Conrad Veidt film, or by the way, are we saying Veidt or Veidt? I always go Veidt, but I was going to uh, lean on what you were going to pronounce. So <laughs> it's up in I the air. I was going to ask both of you. So yeah, that's yeah. fine. Let's well, go Veidt. The, yeah, that's the proper German pronunciation. So let's go with that. Um, there's another one he's in and he's a good guy in that film. And I love it. I wish I could remember the name of it. I should have looked it up and I didn't. But there's a lot of this stuff from, you know, the 30s and the 40s. And there's even another one from 1939 with, oh gosh, I can't remember the guy's name. He didn't become a huge actor. But I, I want to sue. Uh, I was a Nazi a spy, isn't it? Or something? Oh. Yeah, something like that. People can look it up. Put go to IMDb or Google and go, I was a Nazi. Um, <laughs> Although I guess that sentence could end right there, couldn't it? Um, but it's a pretty good one because, you know, this guy gets manipulated and believing in the dream of either fascism or uh, something like that. And he gets sucked in only to realize he's, you know, done wrong um, and is facing like, life in prison, that kind of a thing. Y you can go all the way to a cute film with um, Rosalind Russell in the, what is it, 1969 or something like that, where she's working for the government, um, or at least she thinks she's working for the government. Uh, that name also escapes me. Isn't that great? Here I am recommending movies and I can't remember their names. <laughs> but, I, you know, you can, also I love the, you know, traditional, you, you know, Sean Connery 007 films. You know, I think they're better than all the other ones, although Daniel Craig's films do pretty much kick ass. So, Well, we often um, ask um, guests on the show who their bond is, but I think you've just answered it there with Sean Connery. Yeah, he's just so sexy, guys. I don't know what you, who you think is sexier. I'd love to know. <laughs> well, I thought Roger Moore, late era. <laughs> okay. You're all about the eyebrows, are you? <laughs> yeah, and the active wear. <laughs> now, I will say Timothy Dalton is pretty damn sexy, but he had two of the worst films. They're just bad stories. They're definitely polarizing with fans, for sure. Yeah, and Lazenby is darn good looking. He's just, you know, overshadowed by following Connery and not being British. I love that Pierce Brosnan's getting no mention here. <laughs> <laughs> I loved him in, um, what was it, uh, Remington Steel. It was hard yeah. for me to accept him as Bond. But, so that was my problem. To answer your, uh, your Bond sexiness question, my answer would be Sean Connery. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. A man needs a love rug. <laughs> it's either Connery or David Niven, obviously. Oh, yeah, I forgot about Niven. That's uh, right. Yeah, that is a tough call. And Niven didn't have to wear toupee, or did he? I don't know by that age. All natural. Yeah. No, I have to say, Connery without his toupee uh, is I'm pretty damn sexy, too. I'll take him either way. Oh, yeah. 
Well, moving on from sexy Conneries, uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about this week's film. Cam, what have we got? We are doing the 1939 spy film, well, The Spy in Black, directed by Michael Powell and written by Emmerich Pressburger. Right, before we get into uh, the synopsis, I had never really heard of this film before tackling it for the podcast. I'm a newbie to it. Cam, did you have any sort of history with it at all? No, I really didn't. I was well aware of Powell and Pressburger. I've watched a a, a number of their films, but um, no, this was just one on our list. And uh, when I realized who was attached, that made it much more exciting to tackle on the show. Um, But yeah, no experience watching it before. What about you, Carrie? You had never watched this film before? I hadn't. It's just one that had skated by and I wasn't really that aware of. Well, I can see that's pretty easy, actually, because it is from 1939. And 1939 is pretty overshadowed by dozens of other films. Um, I came across it because I was so interested in 1939 that I set my sights on watching every single film from 1939. Wow. And I was intrigued by this one because it has Conrad Veidt who I adore. And uh, for those who may not be able to place the name, he's Major Strasser in Casablanca. And he's the, um, what is it? I don't think his name is Jafar in it, but he's in The Thief of Baghdad. And the character of Jafar in Disney's Aladdin was physically based on Conrad Veidt's um, persona in that film. Yeah, and actually, uh, Conrad Veidt is also the inspiration for the Joker in Batman yeah. comics from the movie The Man Who Laughs, which was a silent film back in the day. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Yeah, and, you know, I just find him so charming uh, in this film and just in general, even when he's being as nasty as um, Major Strasser, there's just something about him that has this depth to his characters that go beyond just being evil and and um bad or you know i believe he said about his performances in american and english films was he was happy to play the bad germans because he wanted to portray them the way that they really were which was complicated and evil Mm -hmm. and he wanted to put nuances in there so that people could understand that sometimes you can be disarmed by somebody whose whose agenda is so against your own Right. I don't know if I answered your question. <laughs> That's what I was just pondering, actually. I was just thinking I was going to re-ask the question. Yeah, I'll ask I, it again. I always give my students extra credit if, when I go off on a tangent, if they can bring me back around. Like, was somebody following that? What was I talking about? Well, we, we found out how you discovered the film through watching all the films in 1939. That makes sense. But, um, you know, is this one you've watched many times in the past, apart from that one time? Yeah, I, I'm a big fan of TCM, Turner Classic Movies, and I, I believe there we have some, you know, old films on Netflix, but they take them all away. And there are some other, um, what is it, uh, HBO Max has a hub for Turner. So when I can and it pops up, it's kind of exciting for me. I can own a film and watch it anytime I want to, but for some reason, it's just more exciting when it suddenly pops up on TV, 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 cable, it becomes an event and I just want to drop and stop and watch it. And, and that's where I got exposure to it in the first place. And then of course, now you can find these things online. And I, in preparation for the show, have watched this film at least six times and I will probably go home and watch it six more times because I enjoy it that much. 
I am curious, this movie has an alternate title of U-Boat 29. Have you ever watched a print of it that was actually called U-Boat 29? I don't know. If I did, it was one of the first times I watched it, but I, I found that bizarre. It's, it's so odd to me that films are named, have different titles in different countries, when it seems to me that it could have translated just as fine. I mean, I understand if the translation has some kind of fence, but spy and in fact if you look at the poster for the u.s it's spy in black but if yeah. you go in to imdb it says the spy in black so i don't know they if they know who they are and if you go to turner classic movies they call it u-boat 29 so it's all very confusing yeah and yet then you see the role t the titles and it's it's spy in black so exactly so i wonder I, maybe it has something to do with when they released it or something like that but I prefer Spy in Black. U-Boat 29 is just too vague. It sounds like a, a submarine movie. Yeah, it does. It doesn't really draw you in as much either. I think the Spy in Black has that sort of mystery behind it. Yeah, and have you seen the poster? The poster is ridiculously over the top. There's a woman in like an evening gown. <laughs> There's no instance in this film where anybody could possibly be wearing an evening gown. There's one couple in this rather salacious embrace. When in the film, it was somewhat, in, you know, t tame, <laughs> but you know, that's marketing back then. Oh yeah. Well, I think before we learn any more about the spy in black, I'm going to read us all out the uh, letterbox.com synopsis. Um, I like this one, but here we go. The spy in black. Today's U-boat terror makes this year's timeliest picture. <laughs> A German submarine is sent to the Orkney Isles in 1917 to sink the British fleet. Boom. <laughs> there you have it. That's it? Yeah. You know, I, this, it doesn't sound anything like what the film is, other than that's like the, um, what is it, the premise for why he ends up going where he's going, but the film is not a submarine war film. No, no. It's really much more of a, a personal drama or thriller in, in a, a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Much like this film, I appreciate that the synopsis is uh, short and punchy. Mm, true. <laughs> but uh, I, won't, I won't go into any more of my thoughts about the film. But Cam, what do you have for us about how this film came to be? Yeah, so Michael Powell, as I referenced, was a um, you know British director he had been kicking around, doing a lot of projects throughout the 30s, began really professionally in 1930 with uh, major motion pictures. He'd done about 21 films. Um, he'd also done some shorts. This was his 22nd film and his first real major project. And um, he'd had a breakthrough film in 1937 called The Edge of the World, which was sort of about a um, small fishing port that was um, kind of giving away to kind of the advancement of society. I'm curious, um, you know, have you seen, Carrie, have you seen Edge of the World? I don't think so. I, I mean, there's, I've sat in front of TCM and then when Fox Movie Channel was classics and AMC when they were classics, where I've seen so many films, I can't remember their names, but I don't recognize the title. Right. So um, Powell signed a brief contract with Alexander Corda's London Films. Corda was a major producer at the time. And... Originally, what happened was Powell was looking to make a movie called Burmese Silver, and he was looking to shoot it in Burma, obviously. But international tensions, as we're getting towards World War II, obviously made that a no-go. So that plan was scrapped. And so Corda handed him the script for The Spy in Black, and it was loosely based on a novel by a writer named J. Storer Clouston, 
who had written a lot of uh, pulp novels. He did one called Lunatic at Large that was fairly popular. And the scenario, sort of the adaptation was done by a writer named Roland Pertwee, who had written the 1937 adaptation of King Solomon's Mines. Now, Powell sort of liked the idea, but he did not like the script. He found it too literal. Um, he felt it was also way too much polite British dialogue, as he called it. So they brought in a writer named Emmerich Pressburger. Now, Pressburger was a Hungarian Jew who had worked in German and French film and had headed to London for sanctuary as things were intensifying over in Germany. And he, you know, met Powell, they got on, and he basically rewrote the entirety of The Spy in Black. The final product is very much his efforts. And this would kick off a relationship that would continue for a long time. Powell and Pressburger would make 20 films together. They would refer to themselves as The Archers, and Pressburger would write all of their films together. And at a certain point, he would also co-direct the films. And they made some real masterpieces, movies like The Red Shoes, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, Black Narcissus, as well as a film Scott and you and I have a certain connection to, One of Our Aircraft is Missing, which was the inspiration for the title for One of Our Dinosaurs is Missing, one of our least favorite movies we ever covered on this podcast. Oh my God, that's a weird connection. I never wanted to hear that film brought up again. And somehow it's back. Dinosaur keeps turning up again. <laughs> now, I, I am curious. Um, Carrie, do you have a favorite of the Pressburger-Powell collaborations? Oh, uh, wow. I, you know, when I was looking at the credits for this film, I was blown away with the pedigree behind this. Because you also had, um, what is, who is it? Milos Rosa is, is, did the music. And, of course, you've got the connection between uh, Powell and Pressburger and, and Corda. And... It's just amazing. You got it. You, you know, you have to give credit to the red shoes. It took me a while to really appreciate that film. I mean, it's gorgeous. Yes. But the story is really weird. Yeah. The sumptuousness of the color alone and the cinematography will win you over eventually. I remember seeing um, Scorsese talk about the red shoes and how it was his favorite movie. And I was like, okay, I need to watch this immediately. I went to the library and got it and sat and was like, huh. <laughs> that was right. not what I expected at all. And it's one, you're right. Once you revisit it, you begin to see the influences all over the place. Um, very prominently in Black Swan, for example, a handful of years ago. And mm-hmm. it's a beautiful looking movie and one I would recommend people check out. Another actually Michael Powell film worth checking out. Uh, it wasn't written by Pressburger, but is uh, Peeping Tom from 1960, yeah. which mm-hmm. is sort of a psycho narrative that was a little too ahead of its time for 1960 and it's a really interesting film. I agree. I saw that only in the last couple of years and I was surprised at how good that film is and it really actually could be released today if it if it didn't look so dated by fashion and so forth. You could release that today and I bet it would be um, a great hit at the festivals. Yeah, and I think it's actually on Tubi for those of you who would like to check it out for free. Um, it's pretty easily available, so definitely give that one a watch. I also really like A Matter of Life and Death. Mm, right, yes. Moore. Yeah, and um, oh, What's Your Face? Kim Hunter, is it? Um, it's, a, it's such a good film. It's weird, it's unusual, and it's got, what's his name? Uh, Livesley from Colonel Blimp. I mean, um, is it Colonel Blimp or Major, whatever his name, Blimp? It's the same <laughs> actor, and I find him so sexy. <laughs> uh, Colonel Blimp, yeah, yeah. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> So uh, Pressburger's efforts on this movie, one of the major contributions he made to uh, shifting the script's original direction was he um, 
looked at um, you know the female lead Valerie Hobson and really boosted her role. Um, originally in the novel, her character was actually a male reverend, and oh. he changed it to a school teacher, which gets this whole romantic dynamic going throughout the story. That was not there in the original story. It seems so obvious, and yeah. yet not there in the original story by Clouston. Well, I guess Clouston wasn't into romance. I guess not. I don't or know. People? <laughs> Maybe lunatic at large is like sweepingly romantic and we just don't know. Yeah. <laughs> but that tension's really important for the film. That's just strange. Yeah. It be there. Yeah. And it's so. tension on multiple levels, which is one of the reasons why I really like it. it the chemistry between Veidt and um, Hobson is just, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So this movie was done on a relatively low budget. It was uh, 47,000 pounds, which is about $65,000 US, and was a hit in both the US and Britain. It's also interesting, this was an era that was referred to as the spy psychosis in Britain, where spy movies were becoming incredibly popular. Uh, Scott, were you familiar with the term spy psychosis? (laughs) I'm living in one right now. Very true. So obviously movies like The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes, Foreign Correspondent, the Hitchcock stuff had really blown up. You also had movies like Night Train to Munich. And in 1939 alone, in addition to The Spy in Black, they put out movies called The Spy for a Day, Spies of the Air, Traitor Spy, definitely a big time for spies. So this movie benefited from that craze. It was a hit. The actual financial information of what it made that year is impossible to find. I couldn't find it anywhere. But I found multiple articles referring to this movie as a hit on both sides of the pond. So there you have it. For that low budget, how could it not be a hit? That's amazing. Very true. It has to open in only a small handful of theaters and it's already financially successful. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Now, as you said, um, Carrie, 1939 was a major year. So I can kind of see why this one might be overshadowed when it comes to looking at box office. Because the top three of this year, number one was The Wizard of Oz. Number two was Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And number three was Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind um, was released at the end of the year. It would go on, obviously, to become probably the highest grossing movie of all time, adjusted for inflation. Yes, Um, exactly. But in the actual year of 1939, it fell at number three. Um, This was referred to as Hollywood's greatest year. Um, In addition to those three, you had movies like Goodbye, Mr. Chips, Stagecoach, Gunga Din. Massive year. I'm curious, Carrie... You've talked about how you tried to watch all the movies of 1939. What are some of the other really notable ones that maybe don't get included on these lists of the all-timers? Oh, wow. Well, I was going to say Hunchback of Notre Dame, but that's included. Weathering Heights, it's always included. Mm-hmm. Nanochka. I think some people forget that that was made in 39. Um, you mentioned a, a, a Goodbye, Mr. Chips, which is also one of my absolute favorite films, partly because he's a teacher and I'm a teacher. Um and you want to get that notoriety from your students somehow, but you don't usually see it until you're dying or leaving <laughs> or something like that. Um, but, uh, yo, golly, I, I'd almost, my mind is a buzz with so many different films. I mean, you've got also the serials, you know, you've got um, the many different uh, Hardy films and you've got a series of, uh, what is it, uh, Torchy Blaine films, and you've got a bunch of uh, the films with Ann Southern where she's uh, Maisie films, and and they sound like wacky titles or silly titles, but they're actually pretty decent little films to go and see. So I kind of, there's almost a not, if it's out there, if you can find it, and it's from 39, it's a good film. The films that have fallen out, there might be some gems in there, but if they've fallen out, it's because 
they weren't much of a good film. But if it's from 1939, I, I recommend you see it. Keep an open mind. You know, storytelling in 39 was very different from it is today, but well worth it if you're somebody who likes a good story. Very true. And it's something I think, you know, Scott, when you started the podcast with me, um, it was one thing you didn't have a, you know, extensive background with old films. And I think you had a lot of the assumptions most people do about what a movie from the 30s is like. And I think you found that's very different. Um, just looking at some of the other ones we've talked about, like Matahari or some of the early Hitchcocks. Certainly 39 Steps, you know, blew me away. I think that was mid-30s, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it that taught me to have more of an open mind when approaching these films. But it is also interesting hearing you two talk about all these other films that came out at the time that I've never seen. So it just goes to show I have a lot ahead of me to, mm-hmm. to check out well, as well. I can highly recommend Jamaica Inn, which is by Hitchcock, which is 1939. It's Maureen O'Hara. Charles Lawton, and there's a bit of a spy element, sort of. They're really, um, what do you call that when you're importing things that you're not supposed to? Um, like smuggling? Yes, thank you. <laughs> Extra credit. Um, <laughs> yes, it's, it's a pretty interesting uh, film, and it's Hitchcock when he's, it's he hasn't come to the U.S. yet, so he hasn't been messed around yet with the American system of filmmaking. And, and of course, you know, he signed up with Selznick first and that just messed with his head. So this is just before that. And before Maureen O'Hara was as known as a star. Mm-hmm. I actually haven't seen Jamaica and it's one of the few I haven't. Um, the last couple of weeks I've been going through the old Hitchcock silent films from the beginning of his career, but mm-hmm. Jamaica Inn is one of the few outstanding ones that uh, of the sound era I haven't watched. Yes, highly recommend it. Okay. Um, and so just lastly, in terms of the background on The Spy in Black, after the success of this film, Powell and Pressburger reteamed with Conrad Veidt and Valerie Hobson to make a 1940 film called Contraband, which I haven't seen. Carrie, have you, have you seen Contraband? I have to say I have not. Okay, well, one to check out for both of us then, and Scott <laughs> as well. Maybe it has a spy theme, I don't know. <laughs> There's only one way to find out. We'll see you next week, folks. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to cut short this week. <laughs> uh, well, it's actually just before we move on, Cam. One other thing about the year I found really interesting is there's that other big event that started in 1939. Yeah. We have World War II begun this year. Um, I know mm-hmm. the Americans didn't really enter it until slightly later on. But mm-hmm. in terms of the geopolitical stage, 1939 is known as the year it started. And mm-hmm. I mean, we'll get into it in my in my my bit when I'm talking about the film, but I really looked at this film as a as a product of the year that the war started again. Absolutely. You know, and, and it's amazing that this film did well despite its lead. Mm-hmm. I don't mean that in a bad way. You'd think it'd be against it. You'd think he'd be up against it trying to sell this film when its I lead is... I think it was successful is... because of the situation, but you know, Maybe. we'll talk about that when you get further into it. Yeah, and the movie was actually put into theaters very shortly before the beginning of World War II, like when it was actually commencing. So probably, um, you know, the the tensions in the air would have definitely fed into, I think, what would have made this movie something to go see. But also, I don't know, and we'll talk about this in the, you know, the next handful of minutes, but I don't know that you would have seen as sympathetic a portrayal towards the Conrad Veidt character, once the war had kind of officially started and, produ- and movie productions were being made, you know, concurrent with the war. So yeah. that is something to, interesting true. to delve into as well. So, um, yeah, that wraps up the behind the scenes. So, Scott, 
All right, well, let's let's just do it. I mean, Carrie, you've rewatched this six times, uh, beating my record of two per film uh, for this <laughs> recording. So I, I need to ask you first, after watching it for what must be the hundredth time, what do you think of The Spy in Black? I love it. I, I find it incredibly entertaining. And as we mentioned before, the pedigree of everybody involved with this production is so impressive. And it might be, you know, before a lot of us recognize them and when i say a lot of us even film aficionados they're like wait a second these guys made a film together before um red shoes before black narcissist it's it's almost like their perfect storm where they all came together with their talents at the height which would take them from there into notoriety and um into their years where they're doing their best work but i have to say again conrad if it weren't for conrad Veidt, you wouldn't have this film. I mean, it would be made, but it wouldn't be nearly as good. Because even though they have him above the title uh, in the credits, if you look at the poster, they actually have um, Valerie Hobson segregated from everybody else. So I can only imagine that she must have been the hot ticket in England at the time that was going to lure everybody in. Even though history shows us that Byte was a bigger star. It's so important that he carries the film so much on his shoulders. He's on screen more than anybody else. You have to have somebody that's interesting for people to watch. And as you noted earlier, his extensive history in silent films as well as in um, rectal theater um, ex- uh, expressionism shows. This guy knows his stuff and the look of his eyes and the small gesture, it's it's something beautiful to watch. And when somebody does it so well, the audience should not be noticing it. Nobody should be sitting there going, oh, look what he just did here and there. It, you just absorb it. And it's only when you've watched the film, the sixth, tenth time, that you're able to sit there and go, oh, my God, just look at the way he moved his finger just there. It's crazy. I know that most people are not going to be that into it. But I'm telling you, anybody who hasn't watched it, after the film's over, you're going to go, well, yeah, it did have all of that. I I couldn't have said much more myself, but Cam, what do you think? Yeah, this was one that really surprised me. Scott, you and I talked about a movie fairly recently called The House on 92nd Street mm. um, that was interesting in terms of what it was doing in its time, but was a fairly clunky look at a you know German spy plot. Um, yeah. So you're never quite sure when you go back to some of these 30s, 40s spy films if you're going to get something that is a really interesting absorbing story like say the Hitchcocks are or something that's a little clunky and trying to make a political statement at a time where they weren't really doing it with the most sophisticated of manner but this film I found so involving and that the plot is just this it's very simply conveyed and yet it's very feels very sophisticated in how it sucks you in and so much atmosphere you know this movie is almost like a play in a lot of ways where it's often just three people in a cottage and a spy plot kind of secondary to the dynamic between the three of them. But I was oh. so wrapped into the character dynamics mm-hmm. that I, it's like the spy plot, I didn't even care at a certain point, despite the fact I thought it was set up very cleverly. Yeah. And um, boy, you know, Conrad Veidt, I'm familiar with him, obviously Casablanca, but a lot of his silent stuff too. I actually, um, I've seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari a few times, but I just actually you know, pre-pandemic was lucky enough to actually go to a very, very old Vancouver Heritage House 
like very, very old, and watched this movie being projected in a living room. It uh. was a crazy event my sister and I went to. I don't I don't think they ever repeated this event, but it was very cool. And when I go to see Vite in a movie like this, I'm never sure, are they really going to exploit what his skills are? And here, there's so many scenes of him in shadows or moments where it felt like they were really exploiting everything this guy could do in sort of that, you know, kind of um, gothic um, silent film mode and bringing it here. So atmosphere, the spy plot, this all really drew me in. And again, Scott, you said it, it was a very punchy 82 minutes, but it was 82 minutes that just flew by. So I really enjoyed this one. And if I may say that you've made a really good point about how they really utilized Veidt's abilities, because there are times being a spy, you're just listening to what people are saying in the other room. Mm-hmm. You are in the shadows. He, you know, multiple times he's in the shadows listening to other people. And you feel like you're getting more emotion from him then than the actors who are actually doing, giving the information on the screen. It's uh, like you said, it's a great storyline, but it could have been, it's somewhat predictable, I suppose, in a way, but it's it's um, executed well. If you were to just try and pitch this to somebody, they'd go, yeah, it's been done. But it's all about execution. And that's what I'm always saying to my students. Don't worry about the fact that this sounds like a film that's been done a hundred times. Star Wars sounded lame when it was pitched, but it was the execution that made it stand out. And uh, you're, everything goes so well together. Maybe it's a happenstance of a bunch of perfect little accidents that happened, but they weave together, whether it's the production design that looks beautiful. I want to move into that house. I hmm. love that house. Whether it's the actors that were cast, whether it was the cinematography, uh, who th- that guy didn't go on to do much else. I think this is the pinnacle of his career or the mood or even all the, I, you got to give credit to all the supporting actors too, because they really help the film create a whole world around you, whether it was the people that were with the school um, teacher character or the Germans and the U-boats, you have a very full world here where it's not just us taking a look at a slice of life. We feel like we're in this world. So when I'm coming into these films, these 30s films, these 40s films, I'm always a teeny bit hesitant still. You haven't quite (laughs) broken me down yet, Cam, after showing me the other house on 92nd Street. That... uh... (laughs) That that broke me in other ways. Give me, <laughs> give him to me, Cam. I will break him. <laughs> um, but this film is utterly charming. Yay! Utterly charming. I found it to be tense, was tight, was fast paced. I cared about the lead character, and I wanted him to succeed, even though I shouldn't really want to. He's working for the enemy, but he's such an endearing person that Conrad Veidt creates such a, an interesting and three-dimensional character that I just am rooting for him even though I should be against him the entire way through and you know this whole idea of this reluctant spy because he doesn't even want to go on the mission mm-hmm. he's just got back from you know 16 days out at sea and he just wants to have a nice dinner and smoke a cigar and he's told there's 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 no meat in the house and you gotta go back out on a mission son and and you're already like, oh, God, I know what that's like. The boss has called you, made you come back to work. And then he's just thrown into this mission. And he's so utterly charming the entire way through. I, 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 it's one of the few times that the second watch was an easy watch. Mm. 
His introduction, I think, is one of the things that sets the pace for all of that. It's a gorgeous, husky, manly introduction of him entering the hotel lobby in that leather jacket. Oh, took my breath away. And he's got that whiskers. You know, he hasn't shaved. Ah, and the way he strode over and he just takes command. And every time he keeps keeps giving a little uh, correction to uh, societal norms to his subordinate, you know, oh, n don't smoke before dinner. Wait till after dinner. Don't mess around with the ladies before dinner. Wait till after dinner because it'll be that much more enjoyable. Just those little things that also sets us up for later that he's been um, molding this man in his own image, which makes what happens at the end even more powerful is because he created the situation that happens at the end. He's also often very low-key funny. He's a character yes. that, um, <laughs> you know, watching him lug that motorbike all over the Scottish Highlands was making me laugh. Or the moment when where he, he starts- to the sheep? Yes, the bah <laughs> kind of like response. <laughs> this is exactly or, what Scott was talking about is him being so likable. You can't help but like him. Even just when he's sitting there in the hotel, breathing in the plumes of cigarette smoke mm -hmm. coming in his face. And he's like, ah, yes, the sweet smell. <laughs> no, like he's just a character I found so charming and funny. And that's why I'm grateful this movie got made pre-World War II. Because I just don't think they would have written this character this charming yeah. and funny. After that, you know, when we talk about the house on 92nd Street, Scott... Um, the German, uh, you know, villains in that movie are not particularly likable. <laughs> well, I think you're right. You're, they're using, because it was made just on the cusp of World War II and it's a World War I film, there's mm -hmm. that distance of nostalgia that people can look at it. There's a certain distance. You have to get away from wars before you can make a film that's lighthearted about it. And this was that time. And you're absolutely right. If this had come out any later, they would have shelved it saying it was inappropriate. We can't do this. So the way they developed his character in that really charming, likable way in so many little things he does and that he was so layered. He wasn't just black and white. He wasn't just, you know, fighting for mother Germany. He was doing his job, which is brought up by um, the, male, the female lead in a little speech of them just doing their job. Um, there's, there's war makes, has people do strange things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, and I forgot where I was going with this. So I'll let one of you guys take over. <laughs> well, the line she says, she says, we're parts of a machine for destruction. And one of the interesting elements is, you know, um, they're at this house. So it's, uh, you know, her, Sebastian Shaw, who <laughs> played Darth Vader later down the road. Yeah. He was Anakin Skywalker mm -hmm. in Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. um, but he's the, you know, quote unquote, British traitor who's going to assist them in this plot. And you have the three of them in this romance, sort of this triangle. But... I found a lot of it was really interesting in that the Vite character has designs on, you know, uh, Valerie Hobson's character, but it's often portrayed in a way where, like, it's very clear she's not that into him. Mm -hmm. And I think in a different movie, they would have portrayed him as more of a, almost like a um, an evil suitor in a lot of ways, like portrayed him as much more dangerous or, you know, there's a lot of movies with kind of the scheming guy who wants to steal mm -hmm. the woman away. And, well, or, or he would have been the guy that it's like that she should be with because they mm. did an interesting thing that Scott had mentioned earlier that we like Conrad Bite, even though we shouldn't. I think one of the reasons is because we have the English traitor to dislike more. Yeah, very true. And the fact that they are kind of occupying this gray territory, it actually made me that much more invested in the triangle because 
it didn't feel like um it was really lopsided where it was very clear that you know ashington was the good guy so vite is just the villain it, it left it much more open in the fact that she's saying you know with her cover because we find out later she's actually a british agent but at the time she's saying she had Spoiler. to you know Spoilers. yeah 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 she had to pay ashington dot 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 you know to get him on board and it's definitely portraying the two of them as these people that have given away their humanity to oh. the job at hand. And so you can sympathize with both sides. And I often felt like it felt like uh, Vite wasn't so much, you know, in love with this with her so much as just looking for some sort of humanity in a uh, a very cold, you know, as as she says, like a mechanical situation. But he does talk romantically about what they're going to do when they go back to Germany. There's mm -hmm. sort of an implication that he's interested in having a, a future with her in some way. So it's not just a one night stand he's looking for. He finds her intriguing when he believes that she is the person that he's led to believe that she is. Uh, play that back guys and see if you can figure out what I just said. Um, <laughs> but uh, I feel like there's the sincerity. Yeah, he is interested in romancing her, no, no doubt, but there seems to be a deeper sincerity about it, particularly since it, he sees that she's settled for a traitor. And that she deserves more than that. I see. I found that to be more of just, uh, you know, Captain Hart's uh, expressing just a, a willingness and a want for this to all to end and to go back to being at peace. And, mm. and, you know, because at the beginning, he just wants to have that meal. Mm -hmm. And then he just talks about going to a fancy hotel. That's his dream is to go out to a fancy hotel and have a nice dinner and an end of war, an end of conflict. Yeah, I, I, you're right, because he was looking at this possibility of what was taking place to end the war i i kind of missed that i kind of didn't delve in deeper into that that's a good point and yeah so much of it is him wanting civilization he you know is going crazy right. over butter for example who doesn't and um <laughs> the fact that you know <laughs> no kidding and um you know you think about this guy wants sort of what is conventional life you know obviously in those days it would be you know, butter, um, good food, probably marriage. It would be very conventional. It wouldn't be what we would look at now, especially in 1917. So it makes sense to me that he is looking at potentially having a life after mm -hmm. this and sees her as part of that. Yeah, I th I got that sense. And I think that's one part of the heartache for him and his disappointment about everything. The, the whole war situation is more overwhelming, certainly, and his comrades. But at the same time, you get this part of him being hurt that this woman he had imagined does not exist. Another thing I want to talk about before we dive into the sort of individual characters anymore is just this sort of overall spy plot. Because it starts off fairly uh, obvious. Carrie, you said it earlier, it's not particularly um, revolutionary, the, the plot itself. But even mm -hmm. the twist later on, I didn't see coming. And, and we do have spoilers on this podcast, so we can talk about it. When um... I, well, I will allow um, spoilers over protest. <laughs> Well, you know, when Ashington is revealed to actually be working for the, you know, the British intelligence uh, with the, the school mistress, played by Valerie Hobson, um, I didn't see that twist coming at all. I genuinely thought that she was a, a German spy. Yeah, they did a really good job with that because the two, well, first of all, the two actresses look crazy alike, like insanely alike. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they've convinced you that they have uh, not only gotten rid of the person they're trying to um, impersonate, but very skillfully without really as questioning why is the woman still in the shadow in the shed when they're making the change? 
Yeah, that's a good point. And I honestly totally bought it as well. I didn't see the twist coming. And part of that is because when they, you know, dispose of this woman who is the real mis- uh, schoolmistress, mm-hmm. it's so, like, dark that it caught me off guard where it has this almost like this dark joke of these, you know, um, you know, dudes in a boat who are like, oh, I heard a splash. Oh, it's just a seagull. <laughs> and we cut away and I'm like, that is the most pitiless death to a character I can ever imagine. And I couldn't help but wonder if in like a pre-code era, they would have left it as that versus the line at the end that she actually survived and they found her. This is not pre-code. No. Because it was a sort of thing that felt like such a dark joke that I thought, I wonder if they're going to keep yeah. that. But in, in some ways, I almost uh, wasn't as pleased that they that they you know revealed she survived at the end because I just thought, wow, there's like a uh, uh, just a macabre nature to that line that I kind of appreciated. Well, and if we hadn't, if that hadn't have happened, um, you still would have seen. Oh, I don't know that old lady get some comeuppance later in the film because you know they mm. have to pay the penalty for doing something like that. So we yeah. would have either found out about her death or something. By the way, did any either of you notice that her hat? kind of looked like the um, black eagle on uh, German officer's uniforms. I didn't catch that. No. The way the feathers crossed her head, I just couldn't help but think and picture the big black eagle on um, many of the of the flags of Germany at that time. I guess I went alone. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, no, I did not pick up on that at all. Um, I, I have a question for you, Scott, though, speaking of things that are surprising. You and I have run into a couple times now shocking moments involving elderly characters. Um, I'm thinking of Cloak and Dagger. Were you as shocked as I was when the older woman, like, smothered the schoolmistress? I, see, whether it's just my mistrust of grannies now, thanks to... Uh... <laughs> Thanks. It's a number of films we've watched, including one of our dinosaurs is missing. Um, I don't know. I felt like there was a bad vibe to her when she was at the door. Mm-hmm. And it was very convenient that she could take her away to make her train. Yeah. And so I was just wondering if that, that old chloroform rag was going to come out of nowhere. And bam, there it was. So no, that one didn't catch me. Oh, interesting. I do have a question for you, Cam. Actually, this one's for you, Carrie, as well, because neither of you are from the British Isles. How did you deal with the thick Scottish accents throughout the film? Um, the only one I actually found difficult was James, the engineer on the boat. Yes. Who, boy, did he sound a lot like Scotty on Star Trek. But um, Yes, exactly. I was going to bring yeah, that up. Yeah, <laughs> uh, also named James. We got Jimmy Doohan. You know, I don't know if there's a connection there. But um, it was um, <laughs> probably not. But it was something that definitely jumped out to me. And that was the only voice that I struggled with. I agree. That was the only time because I, I believe they knew the film was going to be international and certainly in, be seen in Britain. So I think they tried hard to go Scottish light because um, I'm sure if they did a full Scottish accent that far north in Scotland, we would not have been able to understand anything. And I guess that was the engineer's part that it didn't really matter if we understood what he was saying as long as we understood the situation and that his our inability to understand it would add to the comedy there. He's mm-hmm. comic relief. Oh, totally. Yeah. And it's interesting because my sister and I, during the pandemic, have been watching a lot of 60s, 70s Disney films <laughs> that are available on Disney+. Plus. And um, we all have. Obviously, yeah. I mean, it, we often um, joke amongst ourselves that we are the only two people in the world watching some of these movies on a Saturday night. <laughs> um, 
But one thing we've run into a lot is films set in Scotland during the 60s or 70s where we really struggle mm. with the accents and a lot of the slang be used throughout those films. Those are 60s, 70s. I didn't have any problem with this one, but some of those I do. So, you know. Okay. I, uh, it's like a whole yeah, other language. Mm-hmm. To be fair, when you get north, exactly like you said, Carrie, by the time you get up to even northern parts of Scotland, before you get to the Isles, it's almost unintelligible. And, I, and I'm and i part Scottish, so I can say that. <laughs> no? <laughs> well, I can only imagine that the Scots probably have problems understanding somebody from the deep south in America. So it goes both ways. That's true. Well, let's... Um... I suppose the next thing I want to talk about is sort of favorite moments of the film. And I'll, I'll start us off with one. I loved, 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 loved the uh, mutiny and the naval battle at the end. That whole twist where he takes the ship back. I say he, uh, Comrade Veidt's character takes the ship and then his inevitable demise at the hands of his, uh, you know, first in, in, in command. Um, that whole section was great, and and a little character beat that jumps out to me, just worth mentioning, in in terms of again adding to this endearing sense of this uh, Captain Hart. He goes, he's basically taken all of the crew of this uh, you know ferry captive to try and make his escape, um, and he puts all of the passengers in the hold at the bottom, and he says, "All right, I don't want to hear any noise, and you will, you know, you'll be hurt if you don't." And then a baby cries, and he goes, "One exception." Yes, I love that moment. That line is just like that's magical. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that whole segment is great. It is, and I found it didn't have for me a lot of tension in terms of you know, are the British going to save the day here? But what I was the most interested in throughout was what was going to happen to Hart. Yes. Because he's, you know, somewhat the villain of the film in some ways, but he's not a character who's been portrayed as, you know, a mustache twirling villain. So I was very interested what would happen as, you know, as Carrie, as you said, he's basically taken down by the guy he's trained. So it has this tragic air. And I love the moment at the end, you know, where the ship's sinking and he's going to stay on board, (laughs) which actually gives him a lot of honorable shades that another movie would not later on. Um, but the fact that we get that joke where he asks for the cigar, uh, for the cigarette and the guy offers him a pipe and he's like, well, I never learned to, uh, to, uh, smoke a pipe. He's like, well, you left it a bit late, I guess. <laughs> yes. Yes. That whole bit, that whole sequence, you're absolutely right. Scott is wonderful. We see his, his humanity about not threatening the baby. We see his, um, fear that he's about to be destroyed by his own comrades, which is whom he's trying to save because he can't stand the thought of his comrades dying. And when he's trying to spell out his own name up there, this is when his background in silent films really shines because of the look on his face. I mean, you just feel for this man. And a little earlier in the film, the lead female even says to her, we now discover is her husband. Can't we just give him a little bit of time to give away? Can't we give him an even break so that he has a chance? Which is interesting. You wouldn't see that, obviously, what you were talking about, Cam, if it were released a month later. You know, so I wonder, you know, how long it was in the theaters, you know, if at one point, if it was still in theaters during World War II and it just, the the attendance dropped or if it got bad Mm. feedback. But all of those, I think, you know, the last 20 minutes of the film is really exciting. And it doesn't stoop to cliches. Like when Valerie Hobson's character was on the ship, I thought, uh-oh, we're going to have the, 
you know, um, um, having uh, Ashington come in to save her because he'll have her at gunpoint or something like that. And they avoided all of that. Yeah. Like it, it really dodged all the cliches that could have made it kind of hackneyed at the end. And maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because the movie was obviously sidestepping a lot of generic writing throughout. So they didn't give into it at the end, but it just was so satisfying as an ending. Well, and so you have to, you know, it's the filmmakers, obviously, uh, who make that decision. Mm -hmm. And these guys are so good that they're not going to go with some kind of cliche like that. And these same filmmakers have often made females strong in their own right. And they made the, her her own heroine. Um, she's the one that goes off on her own. The husband is happy to see her there. He does nothing to do with saving her. And um, that's very traditional with both the producer and the writer and the director. And I like that they made her more of a primary character than Ashington. Mm -hmm. Ashington, you know, he's introduced as a, you know, traitor. He's actually just a British spy there to stop this plot. And he's not really that much of a character. We get him undercover. We kind of see him playing this kind of, uh, you know, this um, disreputable soldier type. But he's not a guy that when he's revealed to be a spy who we need to spend a lot of time with. It's like, okay, he's there to kind of, you know chase after Vite at the end, but we don't need to spend a lot of time with him as the hero figure. No, in fact, we only we only have him as device to explain why she's in so much harm or potential okay. harm. That's the only thing. He's basically helping the narrative in case the audience didn't get it. This is what's bad about him escaping. This is what could possibly happen, not only to the Navy, but to his wife. Well, what about you guys? Carrie, do you have like a favorite moment you'd like to point out? Well, I do, as I mentioned earlier, love the, his introduction. Um, I love it when, you know, in the history of cinema, you've got some really great introductions of a character, one of them being Omar Sharif in Lawrence of Arabia. And I kind of almost felt like this was similar. It's, I know it's an overstatement, but I, it's such a strong moment when he comes in and makes his presence known. He was six foot two and a half. By today's standards, yeah, maybe not all that tall, but he was towering over everybody. In that time, my other favorite moment, besides the sheep <laughs> incident, is <laughs> when he she thinks he's gone to bed, and he hides in that little alcove, and that whole bit of him watching her what she's doing, and ultimately realizing this potential for a very hot romantic moment has turned completely into the most dramatic, uh, difficult, daring moment of this whole story. And the sense and the tension just in that little um, landing at the top of the stairs where all this takes place. I think that's one of my favorite moments in the whole film. For a guy who doesn't want to be a spy, he's pretty good at it. <laughs> oh, and the kiss. That kiss. Oh, my goodness. He comes in slowly. He's been chatting. He's been trying to get to know her. It doesn't seem lascivious in any way or slimy. It's and you see fear in her eyes, but remember this is 1939, so there's could be that like, oh my gosh, is, am I going to fall for this guy, and am I going to let myself get carried away? That's a hot, hot kiss. So that's my other favorite moment in the film. I, I mean, about the uh, the hotel introduction to the captain, um, it reminded me a lot of uh, Sean Connery in uh, Doctor No. Oh, okay. And and just as sort of, I mean, it's not the first time you see him. Obviously, the first time you see him in that film is at the casino. But 
Um, when, later on the film, he's just walking across the hotel lobby and you just got the Bond theme playing. He just looks so cool as he does it. And I, I could just see uh, Captain Hart walking along that German uh, hotel lobby and then the, uh, the Bond theme comes striking in. <laughs> now you're going to have to create that and show everybody. Cam? <laughs> um, as for um, one of my favorite moments... Um, Obviously, the dynamic between the three of them in the cottage is amazing. Mm-hmm. What makes it extra amazing is when the missing woman's um, fiance, the parson, shows up looking for her. And we get the most awkward yeah. hangout scene I can imagine where these two guys have this guy wedged between them. And he's getting up to play records. And it's just amazing. I love any scene like that, that so much of the tension just comes from social awkwardness. It just works so well. <laughs> well, and you need somebody who's out of the know, that that bumbler, that that supporting cast member who helps make that scene work. Because you, you giving the opportunity for the other actors to shine by having the char- uh, character actor come in and do a little bit of business. It's It's brilliant. And a different movie would have that character just get killed or something. Right. And I like that, again, it showed that it's not just because the movie's pulling its punches. It's it's not that at all. It's actually that the Conrad Veidt character has some decency. He's someone who's trying to get a job done, but he's not looking to go around and actually kill people maliciously. If he can just remove them as an obstacle in his way, in this case, just tying him up separately, that's fine. Just get the job done. That's a very good point. We, we do get the, one of the funniest lines in uh, maybe not cinema history, but certainly <laughs> in this film from that scene with the uh, the, the fiancé turning up. Oh, yes! It, it's, a, it's a very British uh, exchange, I have to say, even though it's with a German. But um, just to set the scene for everyone who hasn't, who hasn't actually watched the film, and I will say, uh, Carrie said this earlier, go out of your way to watch this film. It's actually free on YouTube currently. Oh, yay! Um, I'm not a big fan of that. I'd rather people pay for it if they can, but it is up there officially, I believe. So you can watch the whole film. And try and watch the BFI restoration. That's what I watched. It was yeah. beautiful. It's actually a very good restoration. I recommend it if you can get a hold of that. But if not, you can get it on YouTube. But anyway, so basically this uh, Reverend Harris turns up and uh, deduces that the captain is not quite uh, who he seems and asks you know, what that uh, the cross is. And he says it's, uh, he, he says it's the Iron Cross, second class. Uh, the Reverend replies, second class? Then you must be a prisoner of war. And the captain goes, no, you are. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's a great line. It but is. then this is a follow-up. This is a follow-up. The Reverend turns around and goes, oh, dear. <laughs> Yeah, Vi delivers that line so beautifully because there's the gesture of the hand pulling the pistol from the jacket and also his eyebrows and his face. You're right, it's so British. And then the the, um, punch, the little extra little uh, tack at the end of, oh dear. (laughs) I felt like the most British uh, aspect of that character was how angry he was the guy didn't show up for dinner. (laughs) He was so upset. He had to go investigate. Why did that? Why did this man not come for dinner? <laughs> yeah, and actually, I was really glad that they didn't make that guy too much of a character either by balancing it with his wife, who seemed normal. You know, if 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 they both had been so persnickety, it would be kind of like a cringy part of the film for me. But she balanced him nicely, and again, this comes down to good directing and good screenwriting. I haven't really got many, but there is one I want to point out. But I want to talk about issues with the film. Hmm. My one issue with the film is I somewhere in the middle lost track of 
the spy plot, especially just before the boat section and how the uh, mistress lady was changed around. I feel I felt somewhat disconnected from that. Maybe they were just talking too fast. I didn't catch it on the first time round. But like when when the uh, the reverend we were just talking about turns up um, and and saying, "Oh, I'm I'm her fiance." I didn't understand why he didn't recognize her. Then I figured out obviously because it's not actually her. But then then they change it around and say that she is working for the Americans. So I I don't know why. She, oh, sorry, she is working for the British. So I wasn't really sure why he didn't recognize her. That bit lost me. He's his his fiance is supposed to be upstairs or something like that. That the woman in the room is not supposed to be betraying his fiance at the moment because they realize she, she's she can't. She's not her. And they allude to the fact that she's upstairs or out of the room. So he he's is he game as soon as he turns up? Is he aware of what's going on when he turns up? Well, he does say, I want to give her a shout out. And they say, I'm against shouting. So and his first thing when he comes in the room is him saying, oh, I didn't realize officers would be billeted here. Um, which I suppose audiences might be have been confused by if they didn't remember World War One, whereas we know by World War Two. People were placed everywhere, you know, wherever they could fit. Yeah. If there was a free bed, you were considered un, um, well, I'd say un-American, un-British. Uh, you were unpatriotic if you did not allow a stranger to come into your home and, and use the floor space. But you actually thought that she was trying to pass as the fiance to the guy directly? Well, I, 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 well, I thought maybe she would, because obviously at that point, I didn't know she had, she was working for the British. So I thought she was a German spy trying to blend in so then he turns up so obviously he knows that she's not the woman because he knows what his fiance looks like right so it's not her obviously but i i suppose i just got a bit lost in that scene as to why he was there and who he was trying to get to and why he seemed to understand it at the end but not at that point hmm well don't you think maybe it was also a play on on the ditziness of parsons or men well that and uh, you know the the British sop, so to speak, that that person who clueless. Um, you would you would well, know better. I, I than am that. an idiot, so that's true. It, <laughs> no, it, not it all Brits. It's just there's that caricature <laughs> of somebody in the ministry, and I mean ministers, and a happy-go-lucky, and how I guess you could say clueless that they were trying to portray the Br- British as, or at least the British public. Remember, he sits down and eats the ham, and at the beginning mm. of the film, he says he sunk four food cargo ships, right? And they're under these strict conditions in Germany. But you go to England and he said, he's carving up the ham and he says, well, wow, these Brits won't be feeling the pinch anytime soon. So there's sort of an allusion to the British not being clued in to what's really happening out there. Or at least that's what it seemed like to me. Cam, any insight? No, I mean, I agreed. Like that part never lost me at all. I mean, honestly, the only thing I was struggling with a little bit and the movie explains it, was the fact that, uh, wait a second, this woman is a British spy. What happened to the German, you know, infiltrator here? Like, that sort of thread was a little confusing, but the movie also explains exactly what happened, you know, in a couple of lines of dialogue. But initially, just trying to figure it out, I was kind of doing mental gymnastics trying to figure that one out. I will admit that 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 was a difficult moment where I think they should have talked slower. (laughs) They do talk quite fast in this film at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, okay. Hang on. Then. Let me just clear it in my head. I have seen this film twice. I think I understand the plot. But the original lady in the car who smothered with the cloth, 
Is she the fiance of the priest? Yes. Minister. Sorry. Can't be a priest and engaged. You're right. Minister. Okay, fine. Okay, I think I'm up to speed. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm a little... Which one were you saying fine to? That she was the fiance or that he's not a priest? (laughs) I don't know anymore. (laughs) Let's put it this way. We never actually see the German spy, the the female German spy. Right, okay. That's one of the reasons why we have an audience believe that it is she. Because she's only, we see what, from her chest down? Because she's got the shadow on her in that house. And I agree, it would have been nice to have a little more information about what happened to her. But it's it's also not that kind of a movie. They just wanted to get past that information. And, you know, they were relying on the suspension of disbelief. Maybe too much. And Cam's right, they do explain it later on. In passing. But yeah, they, in sort of in passing, you're right, they do. Any Anything you want to bring up in terms of issues or critiques, potentially? Boy, I really don't have that much. Um, the only thing that, as I said, was in terms of the actual, you know, naval combat at the end, I, I didn't feel a lot of tension there, but I was so drawn in by the characters, I didn't really care. You know, maybe a, a movie with a little more money would have been able to stage something a little more impressive. But yeah. I will say, I did think the shot of them firing off the depth charges was pretty cool. So I'll give it that. Yeah, and it was obviously to me, um, what do you call that, stock footage, but it blended nicely into the film. Um, I It would have been nice to have seen a little bit more carnage on the submarine. Um, and I, like you said, some more ships involved with the fight, maybe even some more submarines, because they were all supposed to have been gathered there, and we only see the one. Um, but it's extremely low budget, so I think they did a pretty darn good job with the limitations they had. I will say this. One of the things that bugged me about this film, and it has nothing to do with the storyline, it's production value. I hate, hate, hate when they do an exterior setup, like the house and the road, when it's so obviously on a stage. Mm, right. Yeah. That little mound that's alongside of the house that the, the electric, you know, motorbike goes over. Ah, ah. It's it just pulls me out of the out of the moment, but you know back then people accepted that it was like no big deal. Just like the painting of the wall in the back of the Wizard of Oz, you can tell obviously that it's all painted. You know they're about to run into the wall, but an audience accepted that far far easier back then than they would today. I do have one quibble I'll bring up, and it's really um, not a big deal. It's more character centric, but so <laughs> when the two British spies have figured out, you know, obviously what um, Hart is up to. They conspire in the house and are talking about details right. of what they need to do. Well, he's within earshot. I'm like, I made a note. These two are bad spies. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good point. Because even if it was upstairs in his room, I mean, how soundproof is that house? No kidding. In those days? Come on. That's, that's a very fair point, I would say. Um, but it, it's interesting to know that uh, of, of all the issues we just raised... The only one I had is because I'm an idiot. And the, the two that you guys brought up is just because they're like little tiny nitpicks, you know? Yeah. That's, it says a lot about the film, I'd have to say. Yeah, but but to be fair, Scott, there are going to be a lot of other idiots out there who have the same concern. Behold, my idiots. Does that make you feel better? Well, I mean, it's also something with a lot of older movies in that they often don't explain things a lot. Like, they'll just have... Either the information is just conveyed visually or a brief throwaway line, whereas movies nowadays are very explainy. 
You know, go watch a Marvel movie. You're going to have a character sit there and explain to you the plot for like five minutes. Yeah. Um, well, isn't it the big heat with Humphrey Bogart? Is it the big heat where like several characters die and they called up Raymond Chandler to find out who killed them? And he said, I don't know. Yeah. And they just they just let it go in the movie. And at one point you're like, ah, somebody killed somebody. Somebody else is dead. We don't know why. But hey, we're watching Bogart and Bacall. So just enjoy. Yeah, the big sleep. Yeah. It's the sort of information that they don't really stress over. And like even like a moment where um, you see when Hart and the schoolmistress are sitting out and she like just suddenly in the corner of the screen, like pulls her skirt down over her leg. And it's yes. like I thought to myself, I wonder how many people watching this movie would notice that moment. Yeah. Well, and just before that, remember they're smoking cigarettes, right? And my husband turned to me and said, did they just have sex? Hmm. I said, no, they just ate a meal. He goes, but I thought in old movies when two people have cigarettes that they share, they just had sex. And I don't know about you guys, but I thought it was a um, comical moment that we were led to believe that maybe they just had sex. But then we realized that they're relaxing after having eaten that meal, which for Conrad Veidt would have been as satisfying as having sex. Well, do you know what's better than sex? <laughs> what butter? Butter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I stepped on your line. I'm so you sorry, did, but it still works. <laughs> hey, but you can edit it in post, right? <laughs> sure. <laughs> he won't. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He'll make me sound like an idiot whenever he gets a chance. Take, take my line out. I, I give you permission. Well, I will say initially, for a split second, I did make that assumption that they had had sex. But I actually found that was kind of the joke was that, no, no, yes. they just had a great meal. But the movie was playing with what your expectations of that sort of transition would be. Yes. But you're right. I think I had, Scott, I had to watch it a couple times um, to notice the skirt. Was that you, Scott, who said that? That was me, Cam, yeah. Cam. Yeah, it, same thing. Because it, it, it's so far on the edge of the screen. And he looks with his eyes for the scant of mo moments. So... You're right. I think audiences of the day would have caught it where it's today. We're like, what the hell is he talking about? What, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> Let, let's, let's not open that up. Um, <laughs> we've said a lot about Comrade Fight, and usually we will sort of touch on uh, other characters as well. Um, we said a lot about the mistress. I think Sebastian Shaw as Ashington was was pretty good. Um, I mean, I just see him and I just see Anakin Skywalker mostly. <laughs> well, now I do too. But um, apart from that, I mean, we do get the appearance of probably the world's worst police officer, Bob Bratt. <laughs> I loved Bob Bratt. Honestly, when that character was introduced with that apparatus on his foot, I was like, ooh, this must be a major character because this is a very distinct introduction. I'm going to remember who this character is throughout. And the movie kind of fakes you out and that he's kind of a nobody, but I enjoyed that they, uh, you know, made him feel like he was a part of this world. Well, he's apparently deaf as well, because he's he's like looking in the house with the, when it's all lit up and Conrad Veidt is driving a motorcycle literally meters away right. from him. And he doesn't even, <laughs> doesn't look, doesn't check. Oh, oh no, he's not. He's not. It's, he's supposed to be gliding yeah. over the, uphill? the hump. But I mean, yeah, well, it, he's coming from an uphill to a down swoop up to the other hill. It's not totally 100% clear, but I used to ride a motorcycle. So I, I got it. I suppose if you've never ridden a motorcycle, you might not get that connection, but there should have been some sort of sound and noise of gravel or whatever. Well, uh, yeah. It's in the script, Scott. It's in oh, the script. Sorry, I'm it's sorry. Like, I'm sorry. It's like the invisible car in Die Another Day, Scott. You just have to assume it's able to move silently. <laughs> what's that, what's that right. line from Tenet? <laughs> Don't think about it. 
Just feel it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that that should be the line for all films. Um, but any other jumping out performances for you guys? Um, not really. Like I thought Sebastian Shaw. We kind of didn't talk as much about him, but I thought he was really solid, and I really liked him playing the traitor kind of bastard character. I like that they made him kind of overbearing and, you know, an audience would probably be primed to not like Hart that much, but I like that they made Ashington less likable. <laughs> exactly. I have to agree with you. When he first came on the screen, you just kind of like, go, oh, I don't like this guy. He's annoying. He's a twit. And so again, it's to help make Conrad bite a little more likable because he just is, is, if he had actually been that all the way through the film, then you'd be waiting for him to die, uh, quite frankly. It's like, this guy should die. He's a traitor. I don't like him. Um, and then also it makes you wonder, why is she into him? Is it she doing it just for her country, which is what you're led to believe? Um, and then you get the relief at the end of knowing that he's on the good side and makes you go, oh, wow, that guy's really good at what he's doing because we really believed it. I think he was really, really good. Yeah, it, and that's one of the reasons why I encourage you, anybody to watch, who watches this, to watch it a second time, because you'll really enjoy his performance that much more, knowing what the outcome is. Yeah, it's a movie that would hold up even knowing the twists. Like, you'd be going back looking for patterns of behavior. Yeah, I, I'd say I did the same on my on second watch as well, actually. I, I, and I, I've um, lamented watching films a second time quite a lot for this podcast and really not enjoyed my second viewing. I've you know, kind of switched off sometimes, looked at my phone that old chestnut but this one i I watched it thoroughly both times well i can imagine little drummer girl probably tested you scott (laughs) (laughs) yes sir scott is that common for you for all movies that you don't like to see it a second time no it's not that i don't like to see it a second time there are films i will watch multiple times that i'm a fan of but just for this podcast um for me i have no sort of background in reviewing films or anything like that i'm sure you can't tell but you know um, well thank you but I, I just like to watch them twice to really get a feel for the, the film itself. Whereas Cam has been, you know, basically reviewing films for about as long as I've been alive, uh, more or less. <laughs> Thanks, Scott. Yeah. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we can make the dinosaurs joke, but I think that's been done to death. But um, yeah, so, uh, Cam can watch it once and kind of get what he wants out of it. I feel like I need to go through it twice. And there's been a lot of films we've done that I really have not wanted to go back into, like you know, Men in Black International. For instance, hmm. <laughs> I, I, the first time. Well, was, it's a lot, about, a lot about the film, doesn't it? You know, when you really don't want to go back. The first time I didn't really want to do it, but let alone the second. But yeah, you know, this <laughs> this was probably one of the easiest second watches I've ever had. Have you guys done um, Three Days of the Condor yet? We did, yeah, early on. Did you guys like it? We did. We really enjoyed Good. that one. Yeah. It made the knock list. I, <laughs> I was going to judge you based on that answer. Um, well, I think before we wrap up, then I have a, a a quick question, and I'll throw it out to everyone else for sort of final thoughts as well when I'm done. But at the beginning of the film, we sit down with the captain, and they talk about their time at sea and uh, consuming a lot of sardines. <laughs> and the I don't remember the chap's name. The lieutenant. The the is it Schuster. Is that the right guy? I think it's Schuster. The, the guy he's out to sea with. Is that right? Yeah. Sure. Um, talks about how many uh, fish he's eaten whilst out at sea. So I went and did the math. <laughs> of to how many, uh, how many cans of sardines he's eaten and how many days he was out to sea. He tells you they've had 768 fish and 48 tins. Now, uh, how many uh, tins per day do you think that is? 
I would have thought three. That's what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah, bang on. Three square meals. I, I don't think I could handle that many fish. <laughs> I don't like fish, period. Like, I'll eat canned tuna, like, occasionally, but that's about it. So I would be really suffering. I don't even want to be on an old-timey submarine nonetheless, but... Being on an old-timey submarine eating sardines every day sounds like my idea of hell. You know, I can't imagine. I guess you have to eat what's there to maintain your strength. But I wonder how many guys were lost weight and became, you know, like um, had to go under health leave or something like that because they couldn't hack it uh, that way. I, it'd be interesting to know if that was the case, standard case for you know, German, U-boat, British, American, what the different standards were. And then maybe we'd appreciate these vets a lot more. Well, it, just to break it down even further, there's 16 sardines in a tin. So that's, you know, three cans of 16 sardines a day. That's a, ugh. I can taste it right now. It does not taste nice in my mouth. That's ugh, <laughs> grim. We, we don't want to end on this note, right? Yeah, this, this is really grim, that. Scott. <laughs> Sorry, sorry, sardines fans out there. But um, yeah, uh, final thoughts, guys. Before we get to the not clear carry, which we'll explain in a second, any sort of final thoughts, final questions for everyone? I had a couple little shots I wanted to highlight. There's some really cool observation kind of um, point of view shots. Um, I'm thinking of like there's a rear, uh, rear view mirror shot from the driver when they are mm -hmm. taking the original school mistress, mistress in her car. There's one from the point of view of a cat looking out a window. So, oh. you know, in the world of spies, so much, so much of it is about POV and observing things. And I like that the movie worked in some really interesting shots just watching people. That's really interesting and very observant of you. I'm very impressed. I would give you an A on your paper. Well, I, well, thank you. And I'll throw in one more. There's a shot where Vite is looking out the window down watching her teach the school and it's a really cool shot of him yeah. like watching down like very much kind of observing the territory in front of him uh, i thought that one was fantastic as well so some very cool work there well i would say that kind of leads me into what i really liked and we have talked about it a lot so maybe i'm just you know repeating myself here but that is a moment where we see more of the humanity in conrad Veidt's character mm -hmm. where he because he's smiling he's looking down somewhat adoringly at what she's doing and how well she's doing it. And you have so many of these little moments throughout their interaction with each other that you see a relationship developing if they both were who they believed each other to be in the situation that they're in. And I think that's one of the lovely parts of this film is that you have that undertone of potential of a future, a potential of seeing the happiness after the war people being able to stop for a moment from what they're doing and remember what it's like to fall in love or be attracted to each other that's in there and it's they don't make a big deal out of it it's just part of the film it's just one of the many layers and you have to like Vite in this film to make it as interesting as it is to be worth watching a second time otherwise it's one and done and a film that's going to be lost among the shuffle of all other war films i wonder if that uh i wonder if that original pass uh before the screenplay was sort of you know boosted up was actually just more of a, a comrade fight was just a just a normal spy it wasn't as interesting as he was a german spy or potentially just wasn't as as fascinating as as charming in the original yeah quite possible yeah 
did anybody hear, did either one of you catch the fact though? It's funny that it's called the spy in black because one of the things he says immediately once he meets the school mistress is if I'm going to be shot, it's, it's going to be as a soldier, not as a spy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, okay, then we should call this the soldier in black. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's very true. He also doesn't really wear black that much. I guess when he's wearing like the Parsons outfit, I was like, okay, I can't tell because of the black and white if this is intended to be black, but I can kind of go with that. Yeah, I, I don't know. What was the name of the the book, Cam, you said in the original notes? It was called The Spy in Black. Okay. No, I have no, no idea why then. It's a great title. Yeah, it is. Well, I think that uh, wraps us up beautifully, Cam. Now, let's talk about the knock list. But before we do, just can you just explain the knock list again for our guests and for the listeners? Right. The Knocklist is the need-to-see official classics of the Spy Arts podcast. Every time we do a film, we break it down, and then we decide at the end if it belongs on the Pantheon list of all-time great spy films. So we're not looking at creating like the ultimate snobby list. It's we want great entertainments, we want great films, we want ones that influenced you know important sort of trends in cinema. We kind of want to have the entire encapsulation of what spy cinema can achieve. But we also want it to be kind of a list of all killer, no filler, where you can give this list to anyone. They'll watch it and be like, boy, that was a list of amazing movies. Basically, yeah. So what we do then is we'll all take a vote. And Carrie, as you are our guest, you're going first. Is The Spy in Black making the knock list? Now, Cam, just can you give us a couple of the previous films that have made the list as well, just to give Carrie a taste of what this film could be joining? Sure, you named it earlier. Three Days of the Condor made it on. Um, GoldenEye and Dr. No for the James Bond films. Uh, Goldfinger recently did as well. North by Northwest. Um, an interesting one, Hannah, the Joe Wright film actually made it on. Mm. So it's a, a fairly across the board. You know, we're always looking at interesting inductions as well. Not just the classics like your North by Northwest. Oh, well, Absolutely. I, I would say if you guys don't put this on the list, I am going to come and find you and, and hurt you. <laughs> right. Uh, that's a, that sounds like a yes uh, from you there, Gary. Uh, no, no, one likes a, no one likes a teacher that doesn't like you. So uh, no one wants to be on the naughty list, I, I don't think. <laughs> <laughs> and my answer is a definitive absolute yes. This, this film is getting an A. A plus, 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 plus. I wasn't sure if you guys have pluses. Uh, we have stars here. Hmm. Um. Cam, what about you? It's a yes for me as well. I don't know that we have any other Michael Powell films on our list to cover. Not to the best of my memory, but there might be one in there. But I feel like he's such an important filmmaker. You want to include him. But Mm -hmm. I also wouldn't bend over backwards if it was a mediocre movie. I just think this movie is so entertaining, so interesting. And you can watch it as just an 80-minute spy caper. You're going to have fun. You'll turn it off and be like, hey, that was a good movie. But... There's so much more to dig into that makes it interesting, whether it is Conrad Veidt and all he brings, all the baggage from all his background in film. There's Mm -hmm. just so much here, so much to read into. So it's a big yes for me. Yeah, well, again, it seems to happen whenever we have a guest, but we have two yeses. And as such, my vote is completely pointless. (laughs) But here it is anyway, because I'm sure you will really want to know. I started off by saying I love this film, and I'm going to keep saying I love this film. Cam is slowly selling me on these uh, 1930s films, black and white films. They're, they're, they're winning for me. 39 Steps was terrific. Matahari didn't make the list, but it was a good film. Um, and so, yeah, I am sold on The Spy in Black. It's a definite yes for me. Yes! 
We have converted him, Cam. Yes, and I also feel like this, for many listening, will be a little bit of a sleeper film that I hope they see it as a discovery. Um, you know, a movie that wasn't necessarily on their radar, but hopefully, you know, they find a lot to enjoy in it as well. Well, and anybody who's turned off by the red shoes because it's weird or too girly or whatever, don't be turned off by Michael Powell films. See this one. Mm-hmm. Well, we're quite Definitely. fortunate with it being on YouTube as well. I will be posting a link to that. So if people who haven't seen this film can go out of their way just to, as, as we've said, it's a very punchy 80-minute film. You'll be uh, you'll be happy you watched it. Yay! But but there we have it, folks. That's three yeses, and as such, the Spy in Black is making the knock list. Woohoo! We have a new film, and as such, the dossier on the Spy in Black is closed and filed as classified. Uh, now, before we talk about what we're doing next week, can we have a quick message from the Ye Olde Crime Podcast? Roll that clip. Do you love true crime, but are looking for something different? It sounds like a sitcom. It does. The Benders. The kind of assholes you should probably leave them alone. Do you like learning about cases so off the wall they can't possibly be true? Her wig is enormous, but it is lifted off her head by a monkey. Do you love history, but want to hear about what they didn't teach you in school? It's just got a almost where you hang your horns sign. (laughs) Do you like laughing awkwardly about cases that are bizarre and a little strange? They'd be able to wield so many knives with all of their little arms. <laughs> then we have the podcast for you. Join me, Lindsay. And me, Madison, for Ye Old Crime. Where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. Listen every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. That's the Ye Olde Crime podcast. You can find that on all major podcast apps. Uh, this is a Ye Olde film, so we thought that made sense. Um, now, before we talk about next week, Cam, Carrie, thank you so, so much for taking the time to join us this week. Oh, thank you for letting me spout about my favorite subject, old movies. It's so difficult to find people who are willing to listen to you when you want to do this. So the fact that you've given me a chance has just really made me very, very happy. Firstly, we've never had a return guest on the podcast so far. Okay. That's a threat? Is that a threat, Scott? Well, it's sounding like one. I'm worried it's sounding like one. Don't, yeah, yeah. Don't tease me. Don't tease me. <laughs> but I have a feeling you'll be back quite soon. Yay! I would love to come back. Thank you so much for the invitation. However, where can the listeners find more from you in the meantime? Uh, well, my Twitter handle is at classic films my instagram is classic film professor i have a website classicfilmfan.com and if anybody's still on facebook you can find me at classic film fan on facebook awesome and or we'll you have... can enroll in one of my classes <laughs> for sure and we'll have links to all of that stuff in the show notes so check those out for more of uh carrie's observations on classic film how, how can i get to one of these classes i'm in england Mm. Oh, I do them online. Oh, well, well, there you have it, Scott. There you go. <laughs> I have students from all over the world, and I record my lectures so that they can listen to them at their own convenience and not have to be at class at a Western time where they might be sleeping instead. And and where can people find those? Well, I'd have to send you a link. Yeah, they're not because it's you know you're supposed to be enrolled in the class and oh. university, but I could send you a link if if you're so dying to listen to me talk about. 
films in a very, you know, educational, boring manner. Sure, I'll send you a link. <laughs> um, well, you were educational, but you certainly weren't boring. So don't go saying that, Carrie. Thank you. But again, thank you again so much for joining us. Um, and we do hope to have you back down the road for another film. Can't wait. Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we got a real change of pace. <laughs> we are jumping to the year 2012 to take on Taken 2, featuring the return of Brian Mills. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolute pivot. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, a real whiplash uh, transition there. Yeah. Um, is this the one with the, the ill-fated jump over the fence? Uh, it is, yes. It's directed by Olivier Megaton, who has the greatest name in the history of film. That is someone's name? Mm-hmm. It, well, I don't know that that was a birth name. <laughs> <laughs> there you have it, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Taken 2 and join us next week. We are a proud member of Quite The Thing Podcast Network. You can find out more about them on quitethethingmedia.com. And don't forget to follow us discreetly at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But... Until next week, listeners, butter. <laughs>